our Savior. Amen. I'll be reading from First uh, Peter one, uh, sorry, First Peter three, uh, verse eighteen to twenty-two. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. That he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from your body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and it is and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Second reading is from Mark 1, verse 9 to 15. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth and in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. After John was, uh, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is, has come near. Repent and believe the good news. May God add his blessing to the reading. Well, you know, uh, we're well into February now, and I realize that I've not used a running metaphor this year. Can you believe it? So not to disappoint you, I have to admit that I am not running these days. It gets, I have sadly contracted plantar fasciitis, which aiding pain in my heel. Every time I run, aggravate the condition, and want to recover and heal, I have to stop making it worse. Now, my plantar fasciitis is excruciating. I am registered to run the Canberra Marathon in April. Now, since I'm not able to train by running due to my heel pain, then I will not be ready to run the marathon. Organizers have allowing me to apply my registration. Box. Hold that for a moment, folks. We're going to switch to a handheld. Okay. Check. There we go. We're all good. Nice. So I set 
for myself a goal to run a marathon this year. I cannot achieve this goal with only a good intention. Because I cannot train, I will not be able to achieve my goal for this year of running the Canberra Marathon for the third time. Now the photo, if you're interested, is me emotionally and physically exhausted after completing my first Canberra Marathon. Anyway, whether running, whether fat loss, whether continuing education, or any other kind, we must train ourselves appropriately and well if we want to achieve the goals we set for ourselves. The same is very much true for achieving a balanced Christian life. We must train for contemplation, for integrity, for power, for compassion, for living the message, and for incarnation. Now, last week, in our exploration of the balanced Christian life, I described for you the contemplative tradition which is the prayer-filled life. We were reminded of how the, from the earliest days of the church, both spiritual giants and ordinary saints have discovered it is through an ever-deepening connection with God, which the prayer-filled life provides. Through that ever-deepening connection, we are encouraged to respond with integrity and equipped to enter into an ever-deepening reformation of the heart from which all action flows. Which then brings us to the holiness tradition. Individuals and movements within the history of the church which have focused on the inward reformation of the heart and the development of spiritual habits, in other words, virtues. The more deeply ingrained those habits of virtue become, they make our lives function well and bring about the lasting resilience and integrity of a godly character in the face of the challenges of life. So the holiness tradition appreciates how the virtuous life requires effort. It is, as Paul the Apostle wrote, train yourself in godliness, for the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. As the friends of Jesus work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, we know streams of living water flow from deep within as Jesus promised. Those blessings and rewards are experienced now, even if only partially. They are not reserved for the future. So how then do the friends of Jesus train for living a virtuous life? Well, a good place to start is by following the example of James, the brother of Jesus. See, I'm going to assume that you are all comfortable with the fact that Jesus did have brothers and sisters. And James was apparently the eldest of Jesus' brothers. Interestingly, neither James nor his family believed Jesus is who he said he is, at least not during his public ministry. On at least two occasions, they tried to interfere with his ministry, once attempting to restrain him and another time trying to call him away from teaching a crowd. Because of this, James, the brother of Jesus, was not among Jesus' disciples nor among those amazed at Jesus' teaching or healing. 
he may even have been antagonistic towards his brother and his ministry. Yet, when the disciples gathered in Jerusalem, waiting for the Holy Spirit to descend, as promised by Jesus, which occurred on the day of Pentecost, Mary, his mother, and James, and the rest of Jesus' brothers were there with them. Even more, within a few short years, James had been elevated to the status of a pillar of the church, even authoring the letter that bears his name. This was a complete change, a radical conversion. What changed Jesus' mind, or James's mind? What encounter with the living God did he have? Well, if we are paying attention when we read the Bible and put separated pieces together, then we will notice from the first letter to the Corinthians that according to Paul the Apostle, Jesus appeared to his brother James during the 40 years after his resurrection. Now, can you imagine the conversation between brother and brother, one antagonistic and the other resurrected? James had played with his older brother, Jesus, eaten with him, worked alongside him, and then had a conversation with him face to face after his death. That single encounter that we all want with our loved ones who have passed away, that single encounter completely erased all the embarrassments of the past, all the objections, and all of James's doubts. Jesus, his own brother, was and is the Messiah that he himself hoped for. See, placing his faith in Jesus and living a Christian lifestyle, James eventually became the leader of the church at Jerusalem, recognized as an apostle. James presided over the great Jerusalem council described in Acts chapter 15 which decided on the inclusion of Gentile believers in the church. He would eventually come to be called James the Just because of his integrity and his righteousness. And the greatest legacy of the brother of James by far is the letter of James. It closely parallels Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, since both writings focus on the formation of moral character. Now, despite what many may think, James's, James's letter is not about action. It is about the source of action, the heart of virtue. For James, a person of faith can face trials of all kinds with great joy. A person of faith can see with divine wisdom that bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are destructive. A person of faith can relate to all people on the basis of the royal law of love, can tame the tongue, out of the divine resources available and can avoid fighting and wars because the inner wellspring of his life is so pure that from it naturally flows blessing and not cursing. James understood that what is on the inside of a person, well, it will come out. If we yield to the wisdom from above, then by our good conduct, we show that our works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. James offered a summary of the virtuous life when he wrote to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
So what is the kind of action a pure heart will do? Will care for the most helpless. What is the kind of action a pure heart will not do? Accept the pollution of the world's system that is bent on rebellion against divine love. Purity of heart is the source of all right action, according to James. This is why he is such a valuable example of the holiness tradition, the virtuous life, encouraging us to respond to God's grace with integrity. Now, seeking to follow a virtuous life has created within the church a holiness tradition. The second historical movement I want to describe for you in this sermon series, The Balanced Christian Life. Now, just to be completely transparent, for this series, I'm relying on the writings of Richard Foster, most especially his book, Streams of Living Water. You can pick it up yourself, and I highly recommend it. And anything else is written. He's awesome. Now, from its earliest days, there have been many individuals and movements within the church that have sought to develop Christian virtue for a more full and satisfying spiritual experience. They sought a reformation of the heart and our life through an encounter with God. In the pages of history, we find many examples following the holiness tradition. For instance, there's Richard Baxter, who was ordained by the Church of England, but allied himself with the Puritan cause two years later. Though self-educated, he was eloquent, and his preaching drew large crowds. His moderate stance led him to seek reconciliation between political and theological enemies, even though that stance led him to being imprisoned. Then there's Bernard of Clairvaux, a key figure in the Cistercian movement, which sought to bring reform to the monastic system of his day. His motto, to know Jesus and Jesus crucified, has been adopted by Christians throughout the ages, and his outstanding life hymns, and practical mystical piety have been appreciated by Christians worldwide. There's also Caesarius of Arles, who was 20 years old when he entered the monastery of Lerin uh, on the coast of Cannes on the French Riviera. Caesarius devoted himself to bringing holy habits into his own life and the lives of those he served. When ordained as a deacon... He was transferred to a nearby monastery that had a very relaxed discipline. After putting in place a rule that made the monastery a model of piety in order, he drew up a comparable rule for women. Then there's Gregory of Nazianzus, who worked tirelessly for the doctrinal purity of the church by defending the Nicene Council's view of the Trinity at the Council of Constantinople in 381. Twice others tried to get him to accept a public office, and twice he refused in favor of leading a contemplative life, though that life was interrupted from time to time by church ministry. And don't I know it. John and Charles Wesley, you may have heard of them. They became involved in the evangelical revival in England in the first great awakening in America. Out of their itinerant ministries and emphasis on holy living came a method of societies, class meetings, and bands that emphasize mutual accountability for discipleship. Thus, Methodism was born. And finally, there's E. Stanley Jones, who became a Methodist missionary in India following a four-day experience of being flooded by the Spirit. A ruptured appendix and tetan um, tetanus? 
tetanus. Just had a snap there. Anyway, his health condition cut short his appointment. He changed direction to focus instead on serving as an evangelist to Indian intellectuals. For the rest of his life, he combined holy living with moving comfortably among world leaders and working for peace and harmony. Twice, he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. He also developed Christian centers for meditation and group worship. And there are many more examples of uh, spiritual giants and normal saints who responded to God's grace with integrity and devoted themselves to virtuous lives in many and varied ways. The overflowing of their reformed hearts was loving action for their neighbors and changing the systems around them. Now, when we respond to the grace of God with integrity, holiness, the virtuous life, this is the ability to do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. It means being able to respond appropriately to the demands of life because of the spiritual resources available to oneself. Virtue, then, is good habits we can rely upon to make our life work, whereas vice is bad habits we can rely upon to make our life not work, to make it dysfunctional. Good, virtuous habits arise from a life devoted to God. William Law, author of the classic A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life, he wrote, Devotion signifies a life given or devoted to God. The devout person lives to the sole will of God, considers God in everything, serves God in everything, makes all the parts of common life parts of piety by doing everything in the name of God and under such rules as are conformable to his glory. So we can understand then that holiness is not rules and regulations, for these miss the point about life hidden with God in Christ. Holiness is sustained attention to the heart, which is the source of all action. Holiness is not otherworldliness. It does not distinguish between sacred and secular, nor avoid contact with our evil and broken world, because holiness is world-affirming. It is found in the middle of everyday life. We discover it while being freely and joyfully in the world without ever being of the world. Holiness is not a consuming asceticism. It neither despises nor depreciates the human body. It does not locate virtue or merit in ascetical or bodily appetites denying exercises themselves. For holiness is a bodily spirituality. It affirms the goodness of the human body and seeks to bring it into working harmony with the spirit. It uses spiritual disciplines for training the body and the mind for right living. Holiness is not works righteousness. We cannot muster our willpower to do good deeds and thereby become righteous. Sanctifying grace is utterly and completely a work of grace. It is unearned and ungovernable. Holiness is making every effort to enter, as Jesus tells us. 
Spiritual disciplines place us before God in such a way that he can begin reforming our hearts and our lives. Holiness is not perfectionism. We do not become sinless creatures incapable of any wrong action. We can still make mistakes and can still experience a sorrowful regret when we do so. But holiness is a progress in purity and sanctity. We set ourselves apart for divine purposes. Holy habits then deepen into fixed patterns of life. We are ever always in the process of becoming holy. Holiness is not absorption into God. It does not mean the loss of our identity or our personhood. We do not become less real, less whole, and less human, but quite the opposite. We become more fully alive. For holiness is loving unity with God. It is a growing, nurturing, maturing, freely giving conformity to the will and ways of God. Holiness gives us our truest, fullest humanity. When we respond to the grace of God with integrity, seeking to live a virtuous life in holiness, we become the persons we were created to be. See, holiness never involves works, but it most assuredly involves effort. So the question then before us is how do we go about moving forward in holiness, making progress in the virtuous life? Well, first, we train. We undertake activities of body, mind, and spirit that will build spiritual resources within us to act appropriately when the situation demands it. If you want to be a good runner, you run every day. If you want to be a mediocre runner, you run a couple times a week. If you don't want to be a runner, you don't run. Similarly, in the spiritual life, train. The more you train, the more spiritual and united with God you will become. If we are struggling with pride, we practice service. If we are needing hope, we practice prayer and meditation. If compulsions of one kind or another obsess us, we practice fasting, which teaches us to control all our senses and our appetites by the grace of God. If we want faith, we practice worship. We are training for holiness, planning and practicing for perfection. Second, we invite others to travel the journey with us. See, companions and mentors provide us with discernment, with counsel and encouragement. Others often can detect our growth and our development better than we can, and their reassuring words help us see the footprints of God in our lives. Such spiritual companionship also provides a loving accountability and provides advocacy. And third, we stumble and fall but then we get up and start again. Where we are not yet perfect, we know we have a perfect friend who will never leave us nor forsake us. We are looking ahead to the perfection which is to come. We keep pressing on because by the Spirit, Jesus is always with us. 
Our mistakes and our failures teach us the right way to live and that the right way is the good way. Yet it is only by being in tune with the Holy Spirit through prayer that we recognize when we have made mistakes and when we have failed. As Paul the Apostle wrote, we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who, is given, who was given to us. So when we come before God in the practice of spiritual disciplines, following the holiness tradition, his gracious acceptance is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Thus reformed, our hearts will produce pure, virtuous actions like faith, which is trusting in and believing the truths of God. It would also produce hope, which is looking forward with confidence to eternal salvation. It also produces charity, or also known as love, which is unconditional love and willingness to give selflessly to others. There is also prudence, which is wise and careful decision-making. Then there is justice, which is fairness in giving others their due. There is also fortitude, which is strength and resolve to face challenges and difficulties. And finally, there is temperance, which is self-control and moderation in all things. The holiness tradition emphasizes the reformation of our hearts so we are able to respond appropriately to the challenges of life with integrity. The virtuous life is not about rules or judgment, perfectionism, or some kind of merit gained by good deeds. It encourages us towards the ultimate goal, which is not to get us into heaven, but to get heaven into us, to be filled with the Spirit, to follow God's will and ways. The virtuous life is attentive to the source of our actions, to the condition and motives of the heart, and taking on new patterns of life that flow naturally from within. So let us therefore follow the example of James the Just, the brother of Jesus, and the example of saints that have gone before us in the holiness tradition, that the Holy Spirit might make us more like Christ, to will and to act in accordance with God's will for us. And may we always remember Jesus said, the one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. The virtuous life of the holiness tradition overflows. So if you want to begin or to, to further develop a virtuous life, then join me in this prayer of commitment. Let us pray together in unison. Thank you, Kirli. Heavenly Father, I come before you today to recommit my life to you. Guide me in your wisdom and strength that I may seek to live a life of virtue and holiness according to your will and your word. Lord, help me to cultivate the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. May these virtues be evident in my actions and my attitudes. 
I ask for the courage to stand firm in the face of temptation and the trials of this world. Grant me the perseverance to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness in all that I do. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Keep my thoughts pure and my eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith. Thank you for your grace that covers my weaknesses and for your forgiveness when I fall short. I trust in your unfailing love and mercy to lead me in the path of everlasting life. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.